This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. Dear radio friends, the life of the child of God in this world is one of constant challenge and temptation. The challenges of life are not simply the result of difficult external circumstances, but the challenges come because of dwelling sin. With Paul we say in Romans 7 verses 22 and 23, I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. This is the struggle of the Christian life, an inward and spiritual struggle against sin. Sometimes when life is hard we forget this. We think that if God would just change our circumstances then all the struggles of life would be over. If God would just give me a job, all my stress would be gone. If God would just give me enough money to have a family vacation, then we'd be content. If God would just give me a life partner, then I'd be happy. If God would just take me out of my pit of suffering, then everything would be good. And then what we tend to do is to look at the lives of others and suppose to ourselves that they have everything We look at someone with a position of leadership and think that life at the top would be nice. We look at someone with wealth and think that life must be so easy for them. We look at someone who has a good job and think they must be free of anxiety. We look at our married friends who seem so happy and we think that marriage is a bed of roses. But beloved, if you're a Christian, if you're alert to the power of sin and temptation... It doesn't matter what the circumstances of your life may be, life will always be a struggle. Oh, there may be times in your life when it's more difficult to be content and to be thankful. But on the flip side, a life of ease and prosperity, when all the desires of your heart are met, presents its own challenges and temptations. In the past weeks, we've been looking at Joseph's difficult life with its many challenges. He was hated by his family. He was forced into slavery, tempted to adultery, imprisoned wrongfully, and for 13 or 14 years he had a very rough life that presented many temptations. But God was with him. And with his eyes fixed on God, Joseph demonstrates an amazing perseverance through trial and temptation. In our last message, we looked at the story of Joseph's exaltation. When Pharaoh has two dreams, the memory of the butler is jolted, and Joseph is called from prison to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. The result is that Joseph is exalted to the high position of prime minister in Egypt. Now, we would make a mistake if we thought that suddenly now Joseph's life is one of ease that his sudden promotion meant all his troubles were over. I say that would be a mistake, 
because now as leader in Egypt, Joseph is facing a temptation which is stronger and more severe than any to this point in his life. The temptation is that in his exalted position with fame, prosperity, and success, Joseph will be lifted up with pride and forget his identity as one of God's children and his need to depend on God for daily strength. Being in a position of power and wealth is not easy. The earlier trials of Joseph's life, his mistreatment, his poverty, his imprisonment, the monotony and waiting, were trials that most of us can at least to a certain degree identify with. We've experienced the grace of God that enables us to endure poverty and persecution, being despised and rejected because of our faith. But how many have risen to the top of society and there remained completely faithful to the Lord? Oh, I'm not saying that God wouldn't give us the grace to do this, but I'm saying this that there's an extra measure of grace needed to respond to the temptations of wealth, power, fame, and responsibility. Let's consider from Genesis chapter 41, verses 41 through 57, the changes and the challenges that came to Joseph at 30 years of age, when he was still a relatively young man. Notice first his position. Scholars of ancient civilization tell us that at this time Egypt surpassed all other nations of the earth in wealth, education, influence, and military power. Egypt was the Babylon of its day. And Pharaoh says to Joseph in Genesis 41, verse 41, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. All this was suddenly accessible to Joseph, limitless wealth advanced learning, and world power. And along with his position, Joseph had authority. He doesn't just have access to all the resources of Egypt, but he has the right to use them as he sees fit. Pharaoh takes his ring from his hand, and he puts it on Joseph's hand, and he says, Without thee shall no man lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. The ring was a symbol of authority. It had an emblem on it that Pharaoh would sink into clay or wax as his signature on the bottom of a letter or his seal on an envelope. And now in Pharaoh's name, Joseph can do what he pleases in Egypt. He can direct all the citizens of this land to follow his command. He has complete financial authority in the land of Egypt. And Joseph enjoys a sudden fame and prominence. Already Joseph has been clean-shaven, the way that an Egyptian ruler would be, and now he is clothed in fine white linen, the attire of an Egyptian king. A gold chain is put around his neck. He is placed in the second chariot of Egypt, and the people are commanded as he rides through the streets to bow the knee to him. Whenever a new leader comes into power, the newspapers are filled with reports. Joseph was suddenly a celebrity. All these, position, power, and prominence, are temptations to self-serving pride. How will Joseph use them? Will he use his position for self-advancement? 
Will he use his power to get back at those who have mistreated him in the past? Will his prominence give him an inflated sense of self-importance? These are the temptations he faces as prime minister. Life at the top is not so easy. And then notice what Pharaoh does to Joseph. Joseph comes out of prison a Hebrew slave. And Pharaoh does all he can to eradicate that and to completely Egyptianize this new governor. This goes far beyond his shaved head and his linen clothes. First, Pharaoh gives him an Egyptian name, Zaphnath Paania, which means the God who speaks and lives, an obvious reference to his dreams and Joseph's interpretation of them. But nevertheless, it is an Egyptian name. And then Pharaoh gives to him a wife, a woman whose name is Asenath, the daughter of a man named Potipharah. This is not the same Potiphar as Joseph had once served as a slave, but rather this man is identified as the priest of On, one of the cities of Egypt. This man was obviously a prominent religious figure in Egypt. His daughter's name, Asenath, means one who belongs to the goddess Nath. When she was born, her father dedicated her to this pagan deity. Now we should notice here that Joseph didn't ask for either of these things. He didn't ask for an Egyptian name, and he didn't ask for an Egyptian wife. Pharaoh imposed both of these things on Joseph. Why? Because he wanted Joseph to become completely Egyptian. Now maybe Pharaoh wanted that for Joseph's sake because he wanted Joseph to be accepted and respected as a foreigner who is now the new governor. But regardless, this posed another immense temptation for Joseph. The temptation to succumb to what Pharaoh wanted. To lose his identity as a Hebrew. To forget his family and the promises of God. And to get caught up in the life and the culture of Egypt. Maybe as a slave and prisoner, when he was a stranger in this land, he still needed his God. But did he need him any more? That, of course, would be the tempting thought for Joseph. Why maintain his identity? Why not hide it and mix and move with much more ease among the elite in Egypt? Then further, think of all the responsibility that is now suddenly put on Joseph as ruler in Egypt. And think of the unique challenges of such responsibility. A devastating seven-year famine is coming. And Joseph is suddenly called on to save Egypt from the destruction of that famine. What interest does he have in this? Why should he be the one to carry the weight of it? With responsibility comes criticism and the possibility of failure. And in Joseph's case there had to be opposition. He went through all the land imposing a 20% tax on the people, collecting their payment in grains and non-perishable food. He built storehouses in each of the cities of Egypt, and he stored up this grain. There had to be skeptics. Why in such prosperity put away so much food? Whose idea was this anyway? 
and the temptation, of course, is to give in to such criticism, to yield, or to abandon your responsibilities. Think about us. Why is it that we are sometimes tempted to run from responsibilities, to throw up our hands at our children and say, what's the use to give up on our employees or to become exasperated as leaders in the church with the people? Often we want to think it's the children or the employees or the church members that are at fault, but more often it's us. We don't like the criticism. We don't like the lack of appreciation. We don't like the difficulty of dealing with people. And then too, notice the challenge of success. We read in verse 49 that Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until he left numbering, for it was without number. Things went very well for Joseph, just according to plan. In fact, he exceeded expectations. And when the seven prosperous years ended, we read, there was a dearth in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. And when the people came crying to Pharaoh for food, he said, go to Joseph. And visitors came from all parts of the earth because they heard that there was bread in Egypt. This man, Joseph, deserves a medal for saving the world. Or so he could have thought to himself. These were the temptations that now faced Joseph in his exaltation. Pride, trust in self, success, and forgetting his God and his heritage. But, just as Joseph stands up against the seduction of Potiphar's wife, so now he stands up and is strong in the face of these temptations. He remains humble. He doesn't lose sight of the purpose of his position. That it's not for self-glorification, but for the saving alive of many people. He remembers who he is. He remembers his heritage. And he remains committed to the God who was with him and sustained him all through his slavery and imprisonment. Joseph's wisdom, we could say, exceeds the wisdom of Solomon, whose wealth and wives and position and power brought him into serious spiritual decline. What was it that kept Joseph strong? It was his faith in the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who had made promises concerning a Savior, who had promised that through that Savior all the nations of the earth would be blessed. This faith of Joseph we see especially in the naming of his two sons. Verse 50 tells us that during the seven prosperous years, before the famine came, God gave Joseph and his wife Asenath two sons, whom Joseph named Manasseh and Ephraim. The first notable thing here is that these are Hebrew names. Even though Joseph is Egyptianized, even though his wife is an Egyptian and a daughter of an Egyptian priest, Joseph gives to his boys these Hebrew names. That's a bold statement to the aristocracy and to the people of Egypt. Joseph did not want to be assimilated into Egyptian culture. Joseph did not want to be Egyptianized. He wished to retain his identity as a Hebrew. 
he remembered his spiritual origins, that he belonged to the people of God, to Israel, to the people of the promise. Like Moses after him, he wished to be identified with the Hebrews rather than enjoy the luxuries and pleasures of sin in Egypt. He saw a spiritual distinction, an antithesis between himself and the Egyptians, between his God and the God and the religion of Egypt. And at this point in history, Joseph's faith was stronger than any other on earth. When God looked down, the faith of Joseph stood out like the godliness of Noah before him. It's significant that right before the famine, Joseph in faith names these two sons. Did anyone else really believe that the famine was coming? Joseph believed it with all his heart because of God's revelation in the dreams. His faith in God was strong. And we see that also in the names that he gives to his sons. The first son he calls Manasseh, which means he who causes to forget. And Joseph said, For God hath made me to forget all my toil and all my father's house. By forget, Joseph doesn't mean that the pain of 13 years and the memory of his family are erased forever from his mind. Rather, he means that he has a joy and a happiness in his life now that suppresses those memories and that even give purpose to those memories. The birth of a son brings much joy to Joseph. Now he's a married man with one wife in contrast to his father and now he has a child, a family all of his own. And he sees that God has led him through the years of pain and loneliness in order to bring him to this point. What a blessing and joy covenant children are. Psalm 127 calls them the heritage of the Lord. And in Psalm 128, we read, well, we sing this, that with them God fills our home with good. The name of the second son is Ephraim, which means twice fruitful. And Joseph says, For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. He celebrates here not only the birth of two sons, but all the bounty that God has given him in Egypt. And Egypt is not his home. No, he still calls it the land of my affliction. How humbly grateful Joseph is here, giving his boys these names that remind him of what God has done. God has made and God has given. Joseph has experienced the goodness and the graciousness of God to him. And because of this, Joseph does not abuse his power by getting back at Pharaoh's wife, the butler, or his brothers who had hurt him in the past. No, experiencing God's grace, he cannot hold a grudge. Another reason that Joseph doesn't forget his identity or his God is that Joseph is still looking forward to something else. His exaltation in Egypt and his settled family life are not the end for him. He believes that God has a greater purpose. What of his dreams? 
What of his seeing his family again? What of the promise of God to give the land of Canaan to Jacob and his sons? What of the promise to Abraham concerning the exile of his descendants in a strange land? What of the promise of the seed of the Messiah? Certainly Joseph expects that God will fulfill his own dreams and he will see his brothers and his father here in Egypt bowing before him. And so Joseph is waiting. He has to wait some more. And this he does in faith too, believing that God will accomplish his own revelation to him in his youths. The story of Joseph we've seen is a story of God's providence. God is working mysteriously with a secret hand behind all these events to save his people, the entire family of Jacob. This is the church, and God will never let his church or people perish. He has chosen them in eternity. He has loved them with an unchanging eternal love. He has entrusted them to the care of his Son. He has given his Son as the sacrifice for their sins, and so not one of them will perish. This is the purpose of God's providence all throughout history and still today. God works in everything. He works every detail to bring his saints to glory. The history of Joseph is the history of God preserving his church. But here we see in it the hand of God's providence also in the life of his children individually. We've spoken today of the amazing godliness of Joseph amid all the temptations of Egypt. How was it possible Well, certainly it was because the Lord was with him in the palace, just as he had been with him in Potiphar's house and in the prison. But also, and we shouldn't miss this, God has specifically worked in the difficulties and the trials of Joseph's life to prepare and equip him for his work as leader in Egypt. This preparation was not just administrative. God didn't only prepare Joseph to be a good decision maker and leader, but the preparation was primarily spiritual. Through the pain of 13 years, Joseph is prepared spiritually for the high position that comes to him in Egypt. Why doesn't it get to his head? Why doesn't he abuse his power? Because along the way he has learned that the trials he faces and the battle he fights are spiritual. It goes deeper than circumstances. He needs God to guide him, not just in difficult times, but also in prosperity. It has been said, not every man can carry a full cup. Joseph was prepared spiritually to carry a full cup. And God similarly has a personalized curriculum for each of his children. Through hard circumstances, God prepares us to avoid the pitfalls of pride. Through difficulties, God teaches us to persevere so that under difficult responsibilities, we don't give up. Through poverty and need, God teaches us to acknowledge him and to be thankful then when prosperity comes our way. Long periods of affliction ought not discourage us. Bad memories ought not defeat us. And prosperity ought never to separate us from communion with God.
Let's pray. Lord, we love thy word and we have so much more revealed to us than Joseph had. He clung to just a few snippets of revelation, a couple of dreams and some promises that he had heard by word of mouth from his parents. That was all he had. And yet he believed it with all his heart. And because of that, he persevered through so many troubles and temptations. Lord, give us a faith like that so that we might be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. The Gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.